Welcome to the You Can Eat With Us podcast with Libre Connections. Join your host, Tara Harbstreet, as she sits down to chat with people who have experienced the ups and downs of intuitive eating and body acceptance on their path to health and happiness. And welcome to episode 25 of the You Can Eat With Us podcast. I'm your host, Kara Harbstreet, and I'm really excited for today's show for a couple of reasons. So if you're brand new to listening, of course, welcome. We're so glad that you found us. And if you've been listening along for a while, welcome back. We're so glad to have you here too. So like I said, today's show is a big one because we've got a really great guest and I can't wait to get into her interview. I'll introduce you to Anna in just a moment, but before that, we also have an exciting announcement about the first partnership of season two. So I'm teaming up with Carly from Moxie Mind. She's also a non-diet dietitian, but happens to be a body positive yoga teacher as well. She's recently launched Moxie on the Mat, which is a virtual yoga membership that she's offering with live streaming videos. So this is yoga for all shapes, sizes, and abilities from the comfort of home. If you're sick of yoga classes based more in competition than authenticity, nervous about going to a class, or just aren't in the mood to spend big money on a yoga studio membership, then you're in the right place. No pressure to show off, just show up as you are. Your monthly subscription gives you one live class with Carly each week, so that's the live streaming aspect of it, but you also get access to that recording all week long so that you can get in there and get on your mat whenever you feel like you need to or want to. Classes are beginner friendly and 100% body positive. So you might be wondering, all right, what is body positive yoga? Why is it different than, you know, just regular yoga? And I think the biggest difference is that in Carly's classes, as well as other body positive yoga instructors, what you have is the chance to really be present on your mat and in your body without the distraction of diet talk. So you're not going to hear anything about, you know, burning calories or changing the size or shape of your body or, you know, competing with yourself or anyone else in the classroom. And even though that kind of goes against the core principles of yoga, it is something that we have to be mindful of because we do notice it in other settings. If you listen back to our mini series with Jenna earlier this season, you know that was a big topic that we talked about. Now, in addition to that, a service like this is perfect for people like me who often notice things like anxiety or distractions popping up at random times throughout the day. It's not always practical or convenient to think that, you know, I've got to grab all my stuff and change my clothes and head to the yoga studio to take a class when it could be so much more accessible and convenient for me to just roll out my mat in my living room, tune into these classes that I have access to all week and take what I need from it when I need it. I'm excited to partner with Carly as she continues to put out great content each week and you can find this in the show notes if you're interested in learning more. So now let's go ahead and meet our guests for this week. I had the pleasure of talking to Anna Sweeney. She's a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor, a certified intuitive eating specialist, and the owner of Whole Life Nutrition Counseling. This is a nutrition therapy practice dedicated to the thoughtful treatment of eating disorders, disordered eating, and body image concerns. Anna practices nutrition care from a health at every size lens, is dedicated to empowering her clients to notice and refute the influence of diet culture in their lives, and understands that nutrition and interaction with food is both unique and personal. Anna is also a full-time disabled person and uses her lived experience to enhance the work she does. 
Anna shared so much personal and professional insight in this episode, so I definitely don't wanna give it away with any spoilers. So let's go ahead and just get right into the interview itself. Here we go. All right, welcome to the You Can Eat With Us podcast. We're here in season two with our next guest. Today, I am talking with Anna, so welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Really looking forward to what you have to share with us. But like always, we start out each episode just getting to know you a little bit better. So what can you tell us about your journey with food? So I've actually had the good fortune of having a really pretty neutral relationship with food for my entire childhood um, up until age 15 when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, That was the first time that I had people giving me feedback about what my diet was supposed to look like and providing some arbitrary ideas about um, the idea that I had the ability to heal myself, quotes, heal myself from this progressive disease with food. Yeah, and so for for some of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that diagnosis or have never had a conversation with someone who carries an MS diagnosis, what can you tell us about that disease progression and how it's really influenced you? I know in your case, movement and mobility has been one of the more noticeable ways, but what are some of the other areas of your life that, that you notice that coming in? So... MS is a disease that affects, I think it's about 400,000 people in the United States, um, and it looks differently for everyone. So when I first started my experience with MS, I had relapsing remitting disease, which means that I was able to, I would have an acute flare, then I'd be treated with steroids, and then I would go back to baseline. Um, And I have moved now into a part of my disease called secondary progressive, where things are getting things are moving along um, and there isn't there isn't a heck of a lot that anybody can do to kind of slow or to, to stop things from moving, but we're doing everything we can to keep them as slow as possible. Well, and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions because you mentioned, you know, this outside advice or, you know, people attempting to provide solutions for healing your body when in reality, you know, it's kind of like you said with some of these disease states, you know, MS among many, many other conditions, there really isn't necessarily a quote unquote cure. It's more like you said, symptom management or slowing the progression. And unfortunately, with diet culture, so much of that conversation as far as healing or curing something circles back around to food. So what were some of the things that you were hearing or being told and and did you find any of them to be particularly helpful? So when I was 15, um, there was a researcher, Swank, I believe, um, who who, he researched the idea that saturated fat was correlated with advancing disease states. Um, and so when I was very young, I was, uh, I was both like really scared and also really disengaged from the fact that I had this disease because again, when I had relapsing remitting MS, once I was treated, it just went away. It was just my normal self again. Um, but I did go through phases of trying to not eat saturated fats. I stopped eating things that I loved. And again, because I was in a phase of my disease that was pretty easy. I never really stuck with anything for too long. I, I will say there was a short period of time when I was really, when I was a teenager, um, that I think I kind of crossed a threshold into having what was still a healthy-ish relationship with food, but my body was not, I, I was not in a, in a good space 
related to the way that I was feeding myself. And so pretty quickly, I, I just re- like returned to being a normal adolescent. The thing that kind of breaks my heart, Kara, about the about progressive diseases like mine, um, and as you were just saying, diet culture has this message that says like there is a fix it for something that there really truly is no fix it for. Um, and so fast forward to now, I guess we're about three years ago. Um, I was noticing my disease change. I wasn't, I hadn't been formally diagnosed with secondary progressive disease, but I knew something wasn't right. I was feeling really cruddy. And I found a book called by Dr. Terry Walls, who wrote a book and it said something about the Walls diet, how I healed myself from progressive multiple sclerosis. Um, so here I, I'm, a, I'm an intelligent person and I recognize that healing from MS um, is a little bit of a, a false, a misnomer. So like I know there's no such thing as really healing from a disease like mine because there isn't a cure right now. So that being said, um, I read this book and I zoomed through it and if she got herself out of an anti-gravity wheelchair and now walks and is still working as a doctor, then I ought to try this too. And I did. I tried to follow this very, very specific um, and like not pleasant at all diet to heal my disease. Um, and sadly, sadly but realistically, um, it didn't work. I still have MS. But what did happen was I, for the first time in my life, stopped eating with intuition. I stopped enjoying my eating experiences. I didn't look forward to eating. I couldn't say yes to going out with friends. It made eating a really big chore, but it also, on top of that, making this experience that I love so much um, into a horrible experience, it also put this enormous onus on me, suggesting that I had the ability to cure myself from this disease if I could just eat the right way. Where or at what point did you recognize that you had been so removed from that intuitive state and and what kind of brought you full circle about wanting to come back to that? So the first thing I'll say is that this is actually something that I brought to my, I've been a member of a supervision group for many years And before I actually made the decision to follow this protocol, I actually talked with them because a lot of my job is actually about supporting my clients in normalizing their experiences with food. So I was already um, very, very compromised in making a decision to follow this extreme protocol. And obviously, everyone in my supervision group was supportive of my doing whatever I needed to do to take care of myself. And said, as I was saying, you know, I, I won't, I, I have to give this a try. I have to give this a go. And they, of course, were supportive of my doing so. Um, but it was horrible because I really enjoy food and I really enjoy eating with my clients. And I really, I just, I really like food. And so it was really hard for me to have to make the kind of the professional concession, understanding that this would change the way that I actually provided care to my clients, that felt to me to be the primary hindrance to following the, the protocol for a period of time. And then I will also say, like, following something like this, 
is exceptionally cost prohibitive and exceptionally elitist. Like this is not something that is available or accessible to everyone. It is about privilege. And that makes me insane. Um, and so, you know, on further reflection and while I was simultaneously not getting better, um, I made the decision that it just made sense for me to choose my life and enjoying social eating and being able to be the professional whom I think most appropriately shows up to the, to the work with my clients. Um, I just, I came to a place where it just didn't make sense to try to uphold this diet that wasn't, you know, making my life dramatically better. And who knows, like if I had stayed on that diet for six years, who knows if something would have changed, but I wasn't willing to compromise my experience with eating because I actually value that. I, I actually value that more because there are no guarantees with the walls protocol and there are lots of guarantees with regards to whether or not I enjoy myself eating food. Mm, that's such a, a great realization to come to. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of cases, we we have to go through that kind of like turbulent period with food to recognize that, like you said, we do actually value that more than whatever this potential or hypothetical outcome might be when we know that in our day-to-day experience, you know, these meals or these opportunities to enjoy meals with other people, enjoy food and, and get pleasure from the from that eating experience, um, you know, that's like a guarantee. That's a sure thing. And so I completely agree that, um, you know, the, the privilege aspect that you mentioned as well is something that sometimes gets clouded. Um, we get really wrapped up in the, what if, you know, like you were saying, if, if you were to follow this protocol for a longer amount of time, um, I hear clients saying this all the time, like, well, if I had just stuck with it or if I could only stick with it, and, and yeah, we kind of have to have like that snap reality check of, of asking ourselves, what is it that we value the most? And sometimes it's pretty close to what we imagined. And sometimes we do that reflection and it's actually very, very different. So mm-hmm. I know you mentioned your work as well as a provider who's working with clients and wanting to really align how your personal decisions and professional actions um, came into congruence with each other. So what were some of the other frustrations in those healthcare settings, either from your viewpoint as as a patient receiving healthcare, but then also as a healthcare provider? Is there anything that's really stood out to you about some frustrating aspects of navigating those waters? So I, I will talk as a patient first. With a condition like mine, there, there are kind of a couple of different um, approaches. And I've, I've seen a number of neurologists and I've seen a number of specialists. I've been to every single acupuncturist and alternative medicine something since I was a very young because my parents were supportive of my exploring my options and my mom um, still to this day is very invested in, and everybody's invested in my getting better, but she's pretty fervent about it. Um, I've seen a number of specialists who have all suggested different things to help kind of fix and cure my disease. Most of these specialists are not people who are covered by insurance. And most recently I worked with, um, an acupuncturist healer who was really incredible and then ultimately told me that there are five people in the country who can do all of what he can do. Um, and if I wanted to see all of those people, I would have to travel like all around the country to get the care that I was being provided. Um, 
And it really, really, really broke my heart because I was working with this provider who I believed was helping me to restore some functionality. And again, who knows because my disease is a moving target, but I was feeling better. That being said, I was also meditating for like four hours a day and I was getting these really long treatments on several days of the week. Um, again, speaking to my extraordinary privilege and the options that I had to do that. And when I had to stop because we got to a place where it wasn't feasible for my family to continue, um, it was really heartbreaking to believe that I had had this one opportunity. And if I could only find more access to this person, then I would be okay. And it's just more outsourcing of like body expertise. My body is my body is the expert. And I have done a lot of looking for people to tell me what to do instead of tuning in. And I think that disease states make that really easy to do. Right. Well, I think there's kind of that element of authority and credibility in healthcare settings where as the patient or the person who's seeking care, we we second guess ourselves, even though we do know what it's like to live in our body and experience these symptoms or feel these things in our body. But we suddenly become doubtful of that when we're in this setting where here's a healthcare professional who's highly qualified, very, very educated, a so-called expert in this area. And all of a sudden we're like doubting ourselves or we're listening to them and giving a lot more credibility to what they're recommending, even if we know deep down that maybe it's not the right move for us. So yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I feel like in some of our past episodes, we've talked a little bit about advocating for ourselves in these healthcare settings and just becoming more confident with using our voice to speak up when we have that little feeling that's deep down and we're like, okay, I don't know if this is actually right. So how did you kind of navigate that area of, of being able to speak up for yourself and communicate what it was that you were really seeking instead of just receiving all of this information or receiving all of this advice from others? So to be really honest with you, Kara, this is something that still like is, is in evolution for me because when I was working with this doctor, um, I was and I actually think part of the reason why things became so bad towards the end was because of like the emotional investment that I had in, in the success of what was going on. Um, I had thrown 1,000% of my energy and my belief into the idea that this person was going to cure me or heal me or whatever. Um, and now I still have belief and hope um, it's much more scientifically grounded, and so and I believe I believe that hope matters. If if the placebo effect accounts for thirty percent of efficacy, then hope certainly does matter. So I will always remain hopeful. But what has really changed is that I am, um, and this I don't mean this to sound kind of sad, but I am a lot less um, inclined to blindly throw my trust around. And I am, again, I'm hopeful, but I think I'm hopeful with a realistic expectation um, of the fact that I, I know that I have MS and I know that I have progressive MS. And so protecting myself from the emotional burden of the, I don't want to say imminent downfall because again, I'm still hopeful, but I am just much more thoughtful about how much of my time and space I'm willing to invest 
in a promise or an experiment from from another another person. And it, it, this is very much lines up with kind of diet culture and diet expectations, right? Right. Well, I was just thinking as you were as you were sharing that piece, how similar that can be to someone who embarks on this new diet and is really kind of putting this blind faith that at the end of the day, that's going to offer some kind of solution that they've been seeking. You know, right. whatever it may be, it's usually something related to weight loss, of course. And our culture, being thin is is one of the things that we hold up as a value and aspire to have as as problematic as that is that's just reality um but then like you said you know kind of investing yourself so emotionally in this potential outcome that it can really cloud your vision or even impair your ability to actually take care of your body and provide it with with what it really needs and so yeah there are some really interesting parallels that I think you brought up in in that last statement Mm -hmm. yeah and I think I think the Terry Walls the Walls protocol um, probably because of the fact that it was dietary intervention and not otherwise that, I mean, that was a hard hit and it was my first experience of like failing a diet. It was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is horrific. Right. Well, and I think that element of failure is going to be so, so familiar to people who may be listening. And so if you're hearing this and you kind of relate to that feeling, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out that it's not us who fails on these diets. It's really the diet that is, is failing us because it's Amen. not providing those elements that are so valuable and so important, like these things beyond just the the nutrition aspect of the foods that we're eating, right? Like a, an experience with food goes so, so far beyond that. And diets are rarely providing that, um, that wider benefit. And so I think it's worth pointing out and reminding everyone too, that it's, it's exactly like you said, you know, it's just the rigidity and the restriction and the unsustainability of diets that make them so difficult to stick to. Um, they really let us down at the end of the day. And so I think, you know, as dietitians, this always informs our work to some degree or another. And there's so much nuance and variability in the way that we work with clients. But how has this shaped your professional work? And what are some of the the big takeaways that you carry into your sessions as you're working with clients now based on the experiences that you've had? So there are two things that I'll say. One thing is I now live in a, in a very disabled body. And for a lot of my clients, after I've worked with them for a little bit of time, we just kind of have this rule that they'll just come knock on my door and I'll say, come on in. But as I imagine, when you are ready to take a client into your office, you get up and you go get them from the waiting room. I can't do that or I could do that, but it requires a clunky walker and it requires a little bit more energy exertion than I actually have the spoons for. So with regard to the work that I do, I think there are two things. One thing, um, I am no longer seeking to hide my disease from my clients. For a really long time, I put my cane away or I made sure that it wasn't visible. Um, I made it, I, I very rarely walked with my clients. I would always make my clients walk down the stairs. Unfortunately, I'm not on the first floor or the second floor any longer, but Um, I would make them walk down in front of me and not let them turn around and look at me. Like, talk about, like, body shame and not providing positive, um, a a positive body experience or example for my clients. But I was so in my own, in my own space that I didn't, I kind of didn't um, see that. And so a lot of what I talk, I actually have found that it is far easier for me 
to actually speak to the realities of what is going on with, with me and my body. Um, and I find that it does seem to allow my clients to connect on a kind of a deeper and different level with, with me. Um, and I'm also, I'm, I'm, it's very rare that I talk about the walls protocol or any kind of extreme thing that I've done to kind of heal myself. But I certainly believe that this has made me much more um, empathetic with regard to kind of the diet. Um, and I, and when I said diet failure, by the way, that I meant to say quotes around that, but the experience of feeling as though someone is unsuccessful when they are dieting. I mean, we know that that's how diets leave most people feeling. And so I have a much greater understanding of kind of what that experience is like. And I think I'm, I'm a better practitioner because of my experiences. Yeah, there are so many things that can be gleaned from from those lived experiences, regardless of the outcome, right? I mean, there's certainly things that turn out in a more positive way than than what we've been describing. But I do think that having some similarities. Yeah, I'm happy can, about that, by the way. Right, right. It can definitely teach us so many lessons that we wouldn't have had our eyes open to in in other ways or if that had not happened in the first place. And so I can certainly think back to experiences that I've had where, you know, in conversations, sometimes years later, it brings you back to that moment and you're like feeling it all over again. Um, but it can be so, so impactful. And I think you you spoke to this a couple of times in, in this conversation, but, um, you know, things like privilege and um, body acceptance and just being your authentic self in front of your clients can really really create that safe space for them to kind of take hold and say, yeah, this is also something that I want. I see this example or I see someone who's really embodying this themselves. Um, and that can actually be a huge catalyst uh, that sets this, you know, other chain of events in motion for someone to become more accepting or at least more respectful towards their own body. I think there's yeah. a lot of nuance between body positivity and body acceptance as well. You know, people think, oh, you know, I just have to love my body all the time and it's so great and so wonderful when in reality, in order to take care of our body, we really just need to accept it, recognize it, and be able to provide for it in the best way that we can at that particular moment in time. So Absolutely. yeah, I think there's a, a lot of really key takeaways in there. So I'm kind of curious as well to hear a little bit more about your experience with um, being more open about living in a disabled body. You know, you mentioned in the past, you had made a lot of effort to really try to hide it. Um, and you've, you've mentioned some examples that are in more of those private spaces around your work. Um, but how have you noticed in the bigger scheme of things, you know, the way that, you know, your, your body is presented to the outside world or in public spaces? Um, has there been anything that's been particularly challenging about that that you feel comfortable sharing? Well, there's been everything that has been challenging about that and I'm comfortable sharing everything. Um, it's, really odd to be a young person and, and I don't mean that in a judgmental way but it is it is it's been a strange experience for me to be a young person and I and again I live with all of this extraordinary privilege and being young and disabled at the same time is really 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 unique I don't I don't know many people who have the some of the lived experiences that I have now and because of the fact that I haven't been disabled my whole life, I feel as though I am learning 
every single day, Kara, about what it means to be in a body on this planet. And it's very, I mean, it's just, it's been a really interesting learning curve for me. And, um, it's one of the reasons why I have taken in terms of social media, like I, I, I'm talking about my body in ways that I never would have if I were in a, in a fun, in an able body. And so I feel really grateful that I've had this opportunity to learn, um, and to observe kind of humanity in action. It has been both humbling and really, really upsetting. Um, because people don't look at people who are disabled. Um, and I have had a life of people like generally looking at me and treating me like a human and becoming a disabled woman has made me to some degree invisible, which is an experience that is new and not one that I wish for, um, really not one that I wish for every, anyone. And that's one of the reasons why I have worked really diligently um, to kind of share my lessons as I go, because I think it matters for us, for able-bodied people to know what it's like to be on the other side. I have done so many things in my life that I would do differently now because of the experiences that I've had. Your social media posts are so, so insightful. And that was actually one of the ways that I first discovered you and the work that you were doing. And um, I can certainly appreciate the the types of things that you've been saying because it's so thought-provoking and really forces me to be more aware and more attuned to the way that um, I not only interact with people in my day-to-day life, but also just looking around at the environments that I'm in, you know, how accessible is this building or what does it mean for someone to try and navigate this space if they're in a body that's different than mine. And that's been really insightful as far as my work with clients as well. So I, I, I definitely have to extend some gratitude towards you for that. But I also really want to direct people towards that type of writing that you do in your posts. So for, for going online and learning a little bit more about those things that you've been referencing, where can people find you? So I am um, obsessed with Instagram, and I don't feel shame saying that. I really, really enjoy the community that I have there, um, and I'm at Dietitian Anna, um, and I really hope that you guys will come and follow along. I also have a Facebook page, but I will tell you, I don't really keep up with it, um, and Twitter, I'm at Dietitian Anna, but I spend the bulk of my time on Instagram. I have to say that's kind of risen to the top as far as my favorite platform as well. It's just such a great way to connect with people. And I've had some, some really amazing conversations with people that I otherwise would never have a chance to sit down and talk to. And so, you know, like we were joking off air before, before we started recording technology is this amazing thing and really has the ability to connect us. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to come on and share more about your story. It's been so fascinating to learn from you. And I certainly appreciate all the transparency that you've shared in your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Totally my honor. All right, so that was our show with Anna. 
I hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up on some of that amazing insight that she shared from both her personal experience and her work as a dietitian. I know we covered a ton of topics in this interview, but I think it just speaks volumes to the fact that there's so much nuance that's wrapped up with just being in your body and how intersectional this work is when you really do that focused work of trying to heal your relationship with food and still stay respectful of all the other aspects that are tangled up in that. We'll link to all of those ways to get in touch with Anna in the show notes. And then as a friendly reminder, be sure to check out Moxie on the mat, who is our partner for this episode. These are the live streaming virtual yoga classes that you can access on demand with your monthly subscription. And I think it's a really nice way to invest in some self-care for yourself without adding this huge expense or making it really difficult to fit into your busy week. I know we're all super busy and the weeks can get crazy, but I think this is a really nice way to invest in some self-care for yourself. You absolutely deserve it. And this can be a really convenient way to add it in so that you have access to it whenever you need or want it. Stay tuned for next week when we come back with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show and like what you hear, we would love it if you hopped over to iTunes and subscribed if you haven't done that already. This makes sure that you hear about the new episodes as they're released, but it's also where you can leave us a rating or review. We love to hear your feedback. It just helps us do a better job with the show. And of course, we want to put out great content that you're interested in listening to. So tell us your thoughts or leave us a rating. We love connecting with our community. And so this is just one of the ways that you can reach out and share your feedback with us. Like I said, we'll be back next week, but in the meantime, I hope you all have a good one and thanks so much for listening.